you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. I hope you're strapped in. I hope you've done all the strapping, the seat belting, the uh, taping yourself, duct taping yourself down to the chair. You're like, uh, Chris, I'm listening to this at work. Uh, my employer already did that. Uh, <laughs> I hope you're ready because we have an amazing journalist on the show. Uh, he's going to be talking about his new book, Servants of the Damned. Servants, it seems like that should be like, uh, should be like, there should be a voice that says, Servants of the Damned, 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 Damned. Servants of the Damned, giant law firms, Donald Trump. And the corruption of justice by uh, New York Times. David Enrich is on the show with us today. He's going to be talking to some man amazing books. You've probably been seeing him all over TV talk about all the uh, shocking and alarming and uh, insightful things that he's done with his journalism. In the meantime, please go refer the show to your family, friends, and relatives. Go to goodreads.com for chess Chris Voss. Go to youtube.com for chess Chris Voss. Go to all of our groups on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, the big 130,000 LinkedIn group. Uh, follow us over there as well as the LinkedIn newsletter. You'll probably see this on soon. Uh, he wrote, uh, he's written some amazing exposés. Uh, one of my favorites was recently uh, Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump and an Epic Trail of Destruction, uh, that came out in 2020. Just a really amazing, insightful thing. Uh, David Enrich is the business investigations editor at the New York Times. He is the author, most recently, of Servants of the Dam, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump and the Corruption of Justice. Uh, he Previously was the finance editor. Before joining the Times, he was a reporter and editor at the Wall Street Journal in New York and London. We've had many other great journalists on. Uh, his previous books are Dark Towers and The Spider Network, uh, about a man at the center of vast financial scandal. Uh, he's the author of the newest book that just came out. September 20th, 2022. You want to pick it up while you still can at wherever fine books are sold. Welcome to the show, David. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. There you go. And uh, what do you think about my idea of having, you know, an echoing voice? I like it. Doom. Uh, I like it a lot. Like I that? will pass it on to the publisher. I am. <laughs> I'm not an audiobook guy, so I I I, I deal with better with words on the printed page. But man, that was, those were great effects. I like. I it. mean, I mean, I did, I just kind of ham asked one uh, there on the amateur thing. So, uh, but but yeah, I could see like uh, during the audiobook, the servants of the doomed. You know. I, <laughs> I, or, or damned, I should say. Actually, I will now. Every time I think of my book, I will or say <laughs> mention. I might do a little of that echo myself. Maybe you could hire like one of those uh, dark uh, black metal bands to you know <laughs> do write a song for the book. It could be like a side uh, side thing. Anyway, getting on to the serious business for your book because this is definitely serious. Uh, what motivated you want to write this book, sir? Uh, well, I've been covering business and finance for almost twenty years now, and. Uh, for with the Wall Street Journal and then the Times. And basically, you know, I've covered just like a ton of big corporate and financial scandals over the years. And basically, every single one of those I cover in the background is lurking one or more giant corporate law firms. And, 
you know, they're doing everything from uh, helping kind of do internal investigations of these companies to uh, litigating things sometimes, but also interacting with journalists a lot. So over the years, I've spent a lot of time talking with partners at these firms, and I've just been kind of fascinated, I guess, by the way that they are managing these processes behind the scenes and providing this really high-level legal advice, but also in some ways I've found are kind of manipulating the media, including me. Mm-hmm. And and one of the ways they do that that I've found most interesting is that, you know, these partners spend a lot of time with journalists on the phone or in meetings providing kind of kind of inside information, not in a legal sense, but like, you know, giving you kind of a lot of background and color on the players involved, kind of gossiping about some of their clients and providing you with documents and other intel that you wouldn't normally have access to. And for a long time, I just kind of thought that was, well, that's kind of why they want to do that. So they get their clients' stories right in the press and, you know, it's just good business sense for them. And it began occurring to me belatedly, I guess, uh, that another big part of the reason they were doing that is that they want to have good relationships with journalists because that discourages the journalists from ever turning their investigative lenses onto the law firms themselves. Uh And yeah, the legal industry is a huge industry. I mean, there are billions and billions of dollars every year in revenue and it deserves a lot of scrutiny and it does not get a lot of scrutiny, at least in the mainstream media. And so I, I've been kind of hankering uh, to dive into this and really find a good law firm to start investigating and didn't really know where to look until 2020 when I realized that this law firm Jones Day uh, had been doing a lot of work with the Trump campaign and the Trump administration. That piqued my curiosity and I kind of married those two interests and here we are. There you With go. Servants what? of the damn, damn, damn. Servants of the damned. Oh, I can just hear it now. <laughs> Servants of the damned. Anyway, uh, enough of the black metal. Uh, so what made you title? I mean, the title of the book is pretty unique, given we're playing on it. Um, what made you pick this title specifically? What was it in reference to, or what was the implication of that? Well, uh, credit where it's due is actually my publisher's idea. But uh, basically, it's a play on two different concepts. One is there's a quote, actually two quotes in the epigram of the book, so right at the beginning. And one of them is a quote that goes from a famous lawyer and diplomat uh, who served in both Republican and Democratic administrations starting around the Truman era, uh, who says that if law firms ever become, if law firms and lawyers ever become servants to big business interests, our democracy is in danger. And that's not a direct quote. That's my paraphrase of it. And then there's another quote uh, from the American Lawyer magazine from uh, a decade or two ago praising the work that Jones Day, this big corporate law firm, has done serving you know gun companies and tobacco companies and things like that, saying that Jones Day represents the interests of the damned powerful and the powerfully damned. And wow. I just love that quote from the American Lawyer. And so the, this is a it's kind of a marriage of the servants from that first quote with the damned from that second quote. And to me, the implication is that these big law firms have become the basically the handmaidens to uh, clients that are doing things that are not only often, I think, bad for the world, but the lawyers themselves in the inter- in the in the process of representing some of these clients are themselves doing things that I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear about. And, you know, I, I, 
you you profile Jones Day a lot in the book and, and talk about uh, some of the different issues that surround them. Uh, a lot of people aren't familiar with Jones Day. I've yeah. been I've been getting familiar with it, unbeknownst I was reading your your, your New York uh, Times post um, and uh, getting familiar with with what was going on. I'm like, holy crap! And I started you know understanding what uh, Jones Day was doing. Uh, let's talk about this firm and and uh, and how much of the book is is dedicated to them and and how many other different attorney yeah. firms you cover. Well, uh, there are a bunch of law firms in the book. I mean, Jones Day is definitely the the biggest focus, though. And the reason I picked them, I and mean, I mentioned the Trump stuff earlier, and that's definitely how I they kind of caught my attention to begin with. But the reason I liked Jones Day as a target was not really about the Trump stuff so much as it was. That it's the, the law firm is really emblematic of a lot of stuff that's going on in the broader legal industry that I find, uh, you know, very deserving of outside scrutiny. And so Jones Day, in a nutshell, and it was founded in 1893 in Cleveland, Ohio, and for many, many decades was just this big corporate law firm of choice for kind of a who's who of big American companies. I mean, they famously represented General Motors for many years. They represented parts of the Rockefeller Empire. Uh, and then starting in the 80s, they got their their biggest client at the time, which became RJR, the tobacco company. And mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I've spent I spend, I don't know, maybe two thirds of the book focusing on the kind of the run of the mill corporate work that a law firm like Jones Day does and how the legal profession, which had kind of for most of its existence, had really prided itself on not putting profits first. They had the kind of the key motivators for the legal profession were an obligation and commitment to honesty and fairness and the rule of law and really trying to seek just outcomes, regardless of whether you're the winner or the loser. And starting in the really the late seventies, early eighties and continuing to this day, that ethos began to completely change. And Jones Day was at the kind of vanguard of this change and really leading this shift from the legal profession into the legal industry, where there was this cutthroat emphasis on profits. And so the firm, Jones Day, again, I'm kind of picking on them, I guess, but it's it's in the interest of telling a broader story about how these giant law firms came to really dominate our economy, our society, even our politics. You know, in in my uh, in my business years ago, I I saddled up beside some uh, really badass attorneys, and they were I always called them evil attorneys because they were good at destroying it during discovery phase. Yeah, and they they would I mean if you had a if you had a speeding ticket, they would beat them down with just every possible discovery item and 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 delay and and just they would they it would be maddening what they would do and and my, they were my friends so they would they would teach me all the stuff they would do and evidently Jones Day has kind of made this their hallmark is that correct yeah i mean they're first and foremost really good at their jobs and their jobs are to defend big companies primarily that are in trouble with the government or with their customers or whatnot and and the secret sauce of big law firms like Jones Day is not simply that they're good lawyers. It's that they throw enormous, virtually infinite resources at assignments. And so, you know, if you are a person who has been harmed by a product manufactured by, you know, Acme Widget Company, and Jones Day is representing Acme Widgets, they are not going to just litigate the question of were you or were you not harmed by this product? Is it or is it not? acne widgets fault they are going to dig into your background 
They are going to dig into your family's background. They're going to talk to your neighbors, your high school classmates. They're going to do all sorts of research, really kind of turning over every single stone they can find to not really to seek the truth of the matter, but to find ways to undermine your credibility and raise doubt in the minds of judges and juries about whether you can trust anything I say or we can trust anything any of the witnesses can say. And so it's a brutal, just bare-knuckled, scorched-earth strategy that these law firms use. And again, Jones Day has become, has long been one of the leading, most aggressive corporate litigation firms in the country, but it is hardly alone. I mean, this is par for the course. And to me, one of the most surprising or, I guess, troubling aspects of this is that when two companies are facing off each other in court for one reason or another, I get why you want these very aggressive law firms going at each other and you want you want all stones you you want no stones left unturned and uh, that makes total sense. The problem is that these big corporate law firms almost never are representing anyone other than big companies and so when a normal human being or a small business or really anyone else goes up against a giant company that's represented by one of these law firms it's just a completely lopsided fight and the whole reason that everyone is entitled to a robust legal defense is that the the justice system is supposed to have two sides, both, you know, with very good legal advocates zealously representing each other. And when one side has, you know, a hundred times more resources at its disposal, the outcome is not uh, two sides zealously going after each other. It's one size, you know, or one side just steamrolling the other. And that is tends in my experience to not, yield really fair results the cover of your book has a dollar uh hanging over the uh wing of of uh, lady justice who's supposed to be blindfolded and, and impartial do you do you find that 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 ability to just throw everything uh, with a with the backing of money uh do you find that that uh tilts tilts the scales of of lady justice yeah, absolutely. I mean, there. I mean, there's just no question about that. I think that there's a bigger debate one can have about how to best deal with that in that imbalance. But there's no question the imbalance exists, and mm-hmm. it is. It's not like a kind of a little imbalance. It's like a huge imbalance. And, and to me, there's a lot. Of, there's like a many examples I could cite. To me, the most kind of poignant one involves uh, a case that I detail in the book uh, involving the giant healthcare company Abbott Labs, which yeah. among many other things makes powdered infant formula. And that powdered infant formula is something that there's a pattern going back decades of on very rare occasions, babies who consume it uh, get a ty- contract a type of bacterial meningitis that can either kill them or leave them severely brain damaged. Wow. And so, so there's a history of families of children who have experienced these tragedies suing companies like Abbott. And again, the, the, the research on this academic research, scientific research, it's black and white is maybe overstating it, but it's, it's very clear that there is babies are very unlikely to get this type of meningitis if they are not consuming powdered infant formula. That formula is a known breeding ground for this type of bacteria on and on and on. Anyway, just to cut to the chase, the, to me, one of the most powerful statistics I saw was that Abbott, having faced probably dozens, if not more, of these lawsuits over the decades, has not once lost in court. And that is not does not mean that Abbott's baby formula has never poisoned a baby. It means that the, the law firm, which is represented by Jones Day, has just been incredibly savvy and aggressive and effective at either 
uh, crushing plaintiffs in court or in the rare cases where they think they might actually lose, they reach these out-of-court settlements that pay their families some money, but come with a stipulation that you are not allowed to talk about the case publicly. And so the result is that families go uncompensated and more broadly, the world just does not know about this pattern. And, and this burst into the national spotlight earlier this year when a bunch of ba- or a couple of babies died and the FDA then found huge problems in one of Abbott's factories that makes uh, baby formula, which led to a shutdown, which led to this huge um, crisis where there wasn't enough baby formula to go around. But this has been a problem that had been going around and was known in the public health community. It was known in the formula community. It was known in the legal community for decades. And just nothing ever got done about it because I think in part Abbott was using these lawyers who were just going to the ends of the earth to defend their clients in a way that really silenced this issue. Yeah. You said they went after uh, a guy, you know, he had a, he had an affair on the side, uh, one of the fathers, they bring that in and just, just a long, uh, I think it was it eight hours or 14 hours that you said, uh, they, they, it was seven hours, just beating the parents, these parents of this poor child, uh, into uh, oblivion and trying to find anything that, that might, you know, they can take into court and throw up against them. Yeah, and this is a pattern in these cases, right? And I uh, only detail one of these cases primarily in the book, but I, I've found a bunch of others where, you know, you mentioned the thing where the father was having an affair, which was, you know, after the baby had been had contracted meningitis and nearly died. So it had nothing on its face to do with the question of whether or not or how the baby had been poisoned and who was to blame for that. But and there's other cases where, you know, a similar situation where a baby was poisoned or a baby fell ill after consuming formula and uh, Abbott through its lawyers at Jones day tries to raise the issue of a, a restraining order that was taken against another member of the baby's family years after the, the meningitis uh, wow. incident. And, and that's on top of all sorts of, and, and look, those are ish, those are tactics that are common in corporate litigation when normal human beings go up against big companies and they're big lawyers. And this is a, these are tactics that Jones Day in particular mastered over decades of representing RJR on mm-hmm. tobacco cases. And in these Abbott cases, what struck me as really unusual is that not only were they deploying these super aggressive tactics to kind of demean and at times I think intimidate the plaintiffs, but they were also doing engaged in conduct such as witness coaching and uh, improper conduct during kind of pretrial uh, depositions and things like that, that a federal judge who was presiding over the case said was just the worst conduct he'd ever seen in his two decades on the federal bench. So this is not in any court case, the losers of the case are going to complain about the tactics of the opposing side and complain about the judge's bias and whatnot. What sets these cases apart in my mind is that it's not just the plaintiffs complaining after the fact. It's a federal judge who has a very good track record on the bench and has no particular reason to make accusations of bias is saying that these conducts were just beyond completely beyond the pale, not even a close call. And I've seen incidents like that with Jonesay and other law firms in just a wide variety of cases. And it leads me to the conclusion that the, this is not, the exception. This is the rule. These firms use just these completely, uh, just the, their tactic is shock and awe, essentially. And mm-hmm. they're really, really good at creating that atmosphere. And probably intimidation as well, would you say? 
Yeah, I mean, there's another example that just jumps to mind as we're talking about this, where in RJ or in Jones Day's representation of RJ Reynolds, you know, they had Jones Day had hired an academic or was paying for an academic to conduct research into the dangers of uh, secondhand tobacco smoke. The researcher ultimately decided that maybe this secondhand smoke wasn't as bad as he had originally said. He then agrees, the researcher agrees to cooperate with state investigators that are digging into the tobacco industry. The tobacco industry, well, Jones Day, learns of this cooperation. And according to the research, the academic, Jones Day lawyer calls him up and basically threatens that the full weight of Jones Day is going to come down upon you if you cooperate. And this academic is so scared by this perceived threat that he reports it to the judge who's presiding over the case. The judge offers him the protection of the U.S. Marshal Service, and the guy's wife was terrified. And again, that Jones Day's response is that the guy is lying and that those words were never uttered. The, this guy is now dead, so it's a little hard to adjudicate who's telling the truth here. Certainly one person seems to be lying. But from what I've seen in these tobacco cases, in the baby formula case, the work they've done in other cases as well, there's a clear pattern of law firms like Jones Day just going to the ends of the earth to win at all costs. And usually they're doing, usually, but not always, they're doing that within the ethical parameters that they're supposed to. But, you know, they're good lawyers and they're very good at coming right up to that line without crossing it. And also they're very good at identifying have loopholes in the law and the ethical codes that govern the legal profession in ways that they can kind of exploit the exploit little loopholes without actually violating any any actual rules. Definitely. I mean, it's it's quite extraordinary what you put forth in the book. Uh, what a lot of people don't know and don't understand is how steep they are in politics. Uh, t- t- tell us how big Jones Day is from a from a a money standpoint and and yeah. size and power. And then let, let's talk about, I believe there was a partner that joined them that turned them kind of a, on a conservative slant and they became uh, a real powerhouse under the Trump yeah. administration. Yeah. So Jones is one of the largest law firms in the world, but not the largest. It's not even the largest in the U S actually. It has uh, about 24, 2,500 lawyers in I think about 40 countries around the world it is it makes about two two and a half billion dollars a year in revenue, which is a lot of money. But again, it's Jones is definitely not the biggest. And uh, but you know it's a huge powerhouse. And uh, so they were up until the early two thousands were really just a run of your run of the mill, very good corporate litigation firm. In the early two thousands, the firm. Uh, got a new managing partner, so a, a new person running the firm. His name is Steve Brogan. He was extremely, is extremely conservative. And the firm's kind of culture began to shift, I think slightly at first and more dramatically over time. And a bunch of people arrived at the firm in senior capacities and in capacities where they were, you know, had very public facing jobs that were cut from the kind of the same very conservative cloth. And it, um, I'm not even sure who you're referring to specifically about the arrival. I mean, there's a guy named Mike Carvin, who is very conservative, Noel Francisco. Mm-hmm. To me, the biggest one that really changed things was a guy named Don McGann, who arrived in 2014. Jones Day decided to start a new practice uh, advising clients on political and election law. And so they hired this team of hotshot Republicans from another law firm, including Don McGahn. And McGann, one of the first clients he brought on after he arrived, so in early 2015, 
was the Trump campaign, which was, mm-hmm. you know, just getting started. No one was really taking it seriously. It didn't, it was just kind of like a, a small group of people running things. And McGahn was hired to, to be the outside lawyer for, uh, for the Trump campaign. And so Joe, he and Jones Day really worked not only to professionalize the campaign and ensure that it complied with laws and help set up all the kind of legal infrastructure you need to run a presidential campaign, but also, and I think more important than that, really worked to uh, help build and then cement the Trump campaign's credibility with the Republican establishment and the kind of the conservative wing of the Republican party. And that was something that was going to be very hard for Trump to do. I mean, this is someone who, had kind of flirted with being a Democrat over the years, had, was, to put it mildly, had been pretty wishy-washy on uh, key issues like abortion. And he, and, and Republicans, or the, the conservative establishment of the Republican Party just was not taking him seriously, even as he started rising in the polls and started kind of pummeling everyone in the primary debates, which seems like a long time ago. But, um, Basically, the uh, the key way that Jones Day made a difference in those primaries was that it invited it, it basically invited people aligned with the Federalist Society and with a, a whole bunch of Republican lawmakers as well to come to Jones Day's offices, which are right on the uh, foot of Capitol Hill. It's this grand kind of neoclassical building. And they, it was there that Trump made the f- fateful announcement that he would pick his next, his first Supreme Court nominees from a pre-approved list of judges that he would announce to the world and that he would, he would create based on the work of Jones Day and the Federalist Society. And yeah. it, it, you know, the rest is history. I mean, that, that Mitch McConnell, this, who at the time was a Senate majority leader, said years later that the, the creation of the list, that list of potential nominees and it's, and the fact that it became public was the single biggest factor moving the Republican establishment in line behind Donald Trump and therefore helping him not only win the primaries, but also shore up his support and drive turnout during the general election in November. And well, we all know the outcome. Yeah. I, it, 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 this is one of the most important things about your book that people need to understand, you know, the hand behind the power that no one sees, like everyone just sees, okay, Trump won the election and maybe he was a charismatic dude and promised a lot of stuff that he never delivered, but people don't see the powers that are behind the thing. And I imagine they helped him working with the federal society and everything, raise money from, you know, rich donors, rich clients, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you, you know, they represented what opiates, guns, uh, yeah. tobacco, these are all places that were fairly favored during the Trump administration. So I imagine, you know, it was it was easy for them to, you know, help rope in uh, donors. Yeah, I mean, I think they were Jones Day was providing this kind of full service role or wow. full service yeah, assignment from to the Trump campaign. And it ranged from, as I said, kind of creating the campaign infrastructure, ensuring compliance with the law. But then this whole much broader range of political activity, essentially, where and the Republican National Convention that year in 2016 was was happened to be in Cleveland, which was Jones Day's kind of historical home. And so Jones Day, uh, Jones Day was a sponsor of the Republican Convention that year. They hosted all these political events at their headquarters. They had a bunch of their top partners getting on stage with elected official Republican elected officials and people who would then be in Trump's cabinet basically railing against Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party. And 
again, there's nothing wrong with that on its face, right? There's mm-hmm. that's something everyone is entitled to their own political views. But it was a it was a really unusual moment for a law firm, a big law firm, to kind of go so heavy on one party and one candidate. A and B to me, and this is the most interesting part to me, is that it showed that you know Jones Day, like other law firms had mastered these kind of smash mouth legal tactics in court that they would use on behalf and, and out of court on behalf of clients, big business clients over the years. And now you kind of saw them bring this, these ruthless tactics to the political realm in a way that was maybe not unprecedented, but unusual and really powerful. I mean, th- there was the fact that they were before Trump even won the nomination had this huge vetting operation to, uh, to vet judges and uh, or potential judges and to kind of uh, create to assemble this machinery is that's the kind of thing that happens in big corporate law firms when they're preparing for a court fight on behalf of a big client. That's not the type of machinery you usually see a law firm doing in a political campaign. And it was really it was it, it was key to Trump's campaign. Yeah, we, you know, we, this is why, again, I love books like yours, because it shows the hand behind the power, and the true power, actually, if you really think about it, I suppose. Uh, and, you know, we, we're living in a world right now where we've been kind of shocked with the overturning of Roe versus Wade. We've seen that, you know, most people don't even understand the 40 years that people like the Betsy DeVos Organization Center for, uh, Center for, uh, uh, his name escapes me now. Center for National Policy, yeah. and and people have been pushing to overturn Roe versus Wade. Their their whole agenda of the Republican Party, conservatives have been to stack the court, and they've been working on that. And they've won a lot of different things, like the uh, you know Citizens United, different things like that, overturning where you can now buy. Your, I mean, just the power stack of the SCOTUS, and we finally starting to see the results of of that stack winning out where their, their, you know, their agendas of the conservative right are, are coming to fruition with a very right leaning court. But uh, you write in your book and you talk about how, you know, this leads to power and this leads to a lot of money too. Don McGahn gets into the Trump administration. He's, he's working the federal society to handpick the judges to go up. How much talk, talk about how much money and power this ends up giving them, as they basically help Trump ascend to the White House? Well, it's power a lot. I can't be more specific than that because power is intangible. Uh, but a lot of power, and I think probably a lot of money as well. I mean, they the amount of money that Jones Day was making representing the Trump campaign was kind of a drop in the bucket in the grand scheme of the billions of, a dollar, billions of dollars a year they're making overall. But I, I think what it was much more important in terms of was that it enabled Jones Day when they were representing corporate clients like Walmart, for example, that had business before the federal government. The fact that J- the Trump administration had become staffed with dozens of Jones Day lawyers at the upper echelons, not just in the White House, but also the Justice Department, among other places, it allowed Jones Day, its current lawyers, to go to some of their recent colleagues and seek help for their corporate clients on when those clients like Walmart were under federal investigation. And so you would have situations like that that are, and that's priceless if you're Walmart, right? There's mm-hmm. n- there was not another law firm in the country that could have gone like Jones Day did and had three or four people high up in the Justice Department that were in, they were able to receive letters or organize meetings or mm-hmm. kind of play defense. And it, look, Jones Day would argue 
and the people who were at the Justice Department and then returned to Jones State would argue that they were managed to kind of have something resembling a wall between the between you know their previous work for Jones Day and their current work on behalf of taxpayers. But if you look at the outcome it, again in this Walmart case. And Walmart, by the way, was under federal criminal and civil investigation for its role dispensing opioids uh, uh, that ended up killing a lot of people. And the allegation against Walmart was that it had basically been extremely reckless in giving out opioids based on prescriptions that were clearly bogus and where doctors were you know, writing thousands of prescriptions at once. And the argument was that Walmart, some of Walmart's employees had raised red flags about this. Walmart executives knew about it. And yet they allowed it to continue happening because, again, allegedly, this was in the company's bottom interest of the company's bottom line. And so mm-hmm. Walmart, uh, while as his federal criminal investigation was intensifying and it looked like the company might be charged, uh, Jones Day's lawyers representing Walmart reached out to people high up in the Justice Department who uh some of whom used to work at Jones Day very recently. And and what happens next is that the criminal investigation just gets shut down, apparently. Well, wow. I won't even say who shut it down, but I will say that at the time it was shut down, it was there were people very high up from who had recently worked at Jones Day in the Justice Department, and those are the same people who had been on the receiving end of some of the uh, outbound phone calls and emails and letter writing that had come from Jones Day. And so... Again, Jones Day and Walmart argued there was actually nothing wrong with the way they conducted themselves. And my guess is that there was nothing wrong, at least under the law and under legal ethics. I think they were probably very careful to not cross any lines. But, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there who are rightly very concerned with the appearance of a conflict of interest and trying to maintain the integrity and the perception of integrity with the way the government operates. And that's not a good way to do it. I mean, you know, it, like there is few things that erode confidence in the system faster than the appearance of having very rich lawyers going to work on behalf of their very rich corporate clients, calling up their very recent colleagues, and then their very recent colleagues, maybe related, maybe not related, end up doing something resembling what they had been asked to do. That's not a great look. And my understanding is they've been very good at recruiting clerks and and different people so that they can kind of meld kind of more of a a mesh with the government and and people in the government so they can have that sort of influence. So Jones Day would argue that, look, there's no question that's true in the sense that Jones Day has just been an absolute juggernaut when it comes to recruiting uh, former Supreme Court clerks to work for the firm. I mean, the Jones Day, like some other law firms, hands out signing bonuses to former clerks who some, I think it's above $400,000 per signing bonus, which incidentally is more than Supreme court justices themselves earn. Uh, And Jones day would dispute. And I think there's some reason in fairness to them to dispute the rationale behind that. And they say the rationale is not that they're trying to like buy access inside the court. It's that they want a, they want people who understand how the court works from the inside. And that's, you know, not unreasonable, I guess. Uh, and the second thing is that they argue, and I think this is true, that uh, big clients like the idea of of hiring a law firm that employs a lot of people who have this kind of inside knowledge, even if there's they're not using that inside knowledge in, in an inappropriate way, right? I mean, but again, 
you know, to fall back on this, this question of the appearance of propriety and appearance of a conflict of interest, the, a lot of legal scholars and other watchdog groups have raised really serious concerns about the degree to which Jones Day in particular has scooped up just over the recent years and dozens of Supreme clerks, far more than any other law firm. And, and I think those concerns have been only compounded in the past several years during the Trump administration when Joan, not only was Don McGahn and his former Jones Day's colleagues in the White House Counsel's Office selecting federal judges, but also some of the federal judges that were being selected under Trump were from Jones Day. And so there are a bunch of recent Jones Day partners and associates who ended up during the Trump administration with lifetime appointments to the federal bench, including some very senior ones. And uh, Greg Katsis, who by all by all accounts is a very accomplished, well-respected lawyer, uh, had been a longtime Jones Day partner, went with McGahn to the White House. Uh, and then the White House nominates him to be a federal judge. And he's now on the D.C. appeals court, which is behind the Supreme Court, the most powerful court in the country. And, and there are a bunch of others as well. I mean, the when a court last year, uh, or I'm sorry, earlier this year, struck down the Biden administration's uh, mask mandate on planes and other transportation, that was a very young and, according to the American Bar Association, a very inexperienced and unqualified federal judge who had only recently been hired by Jones Day. And so you wow. see the implications of this playing out more or less in real time. Yeah, and people need to understand this. You know, a lot of people ran around angry and are still angry about the overturning of Roe versus Wade, but they need to understand the power and the money and the hands that are behind this. Like, you know, people running around going, well, Trump, Trump did this. Well, he kind of did this, but there's a lot of you, you've got to understand the power that's behind this, the federal society and and, and organizations like Jones Day. Um, and I think they even got involved with challenging the election results, didn't they, in 2020? Yeah, it's not quite that simple. I and mean, basically, they were representing uh, so this took place in Pennsylvania, which, as you may recall, was kind of the key battleground state in the election. And Pennsylvania, the year before the election, had made it much easier to uh, do absentee and mail-in voting, which, you know, proved fortuitous uh, since then there was a pandemic and people wanted to do more mail-in voting. And the law had been written in 2019 in Pennsylvania that basically you had to have your mail-in ballots received in the election office by election day. Uh, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court then ruled that because the mail service was going so slow, I don't know if you remember that, but it yeah. seems like years ago, but the mail service had basically stopped working. And so the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that to enforce that election day deadline risked disenfranchising, essentially a broad swath of the Pennsylvania electorate. And so they ruled that there would be an extra three days to receive ballots. And Jones Day went to court in Pennsylvania to basically try to invalidate that three-day extension. And their argument was that that would open the door to improper voting and possibly fraudulent voting. Uh, the Supreme Court, which ultimately prevailed on this, uh, argued, the, sorry, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, not the U.S. Supreme Court, argued that to do otherwise was basically to almost willfully be tossing out legitimate votes. And Jose also got involved in another case in Pennsylvania that was trying to make it harder or trying to make it easier, I should say, for uh, county election officials to invalidate certain absentee ballots if their signatures weren't exactly alike. And again, both of these 
Jones Day would argue that these were legitimate constitutional issues. It was litigating. Yes, it was doing it on behalf of Republicans and on behalf of Trump. But these were fair, reasonable arguments they were making. I think the counter argument to that is, which is made by a lot of people, even inside Jones Day, was that the intent of this was clear, which is to make it harder for votes that were likely to lean Democratic to count. And that is something that if you believe in the rule of law and you believe in democracy is not a great look, right? I mean, we, especially during a pandemic, but really in any time, like why would you want to do things that make it harder to vote? And there's a huge backlash inside the law firm. I think there's a lot of blowback externally as well. I will say in fairness to Jones Day, uh, once again, I don't want to sound like an apologist here, but to be fair, they were not involved in any of the like crazy uh, <laughs> the like, stuff. nonsense, the Giuliani stuff or the um, <laughs> Sidney Powell stuff or any yeah. of that kind of lunatic nonsense. So they did draw a line there, it seems. But I mean, I think from the perspective of a lot of people inside Jones Day and certainly outside of Jones Day, the fact that they were willing to go to this length with a with a presidential candidate who at that point had already been very noisily fanning these unsubstantiated fears about the risks of a stolen election i I think it struck a lot of people inside the firm as really reckless yeah and i i vaguely remember and i think you'd written about this but i vaguely remember years ago i believe rick wilson was the guy who started it or one of those proponents but uh he used to be a republican strategist um but i think he started the thing where they called out uh where they called out the company and got people to try and i I don't know if cancel would be the right word yeah try and basically you know uh pepper them uh and stuff uh was it rick wilson that started that role it was the it was the lincoln project that was a lot of this um at the time and I'll be clear. Like, I think some of the tactics the Lincoln Project were using were like pretty blunt instruments, uh, to put it mildly. And it, look, there's everyone's entitled to legal counsel when they're accused of wrongdoing. There's no question about that. I think the to me the better way to articulate that though is that while you are entitled to a robust legal defense when you're accused of wrongdoing, that does not entitle you to uh, to legal services that involve anything from intimidating witnesses to, uh, you know, smearing plaintiffs to threatening people's right to vote. I mean, that's not something that those are not among the services envisioned by the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Yeah. The book's explosive and, and incredibly insightful. Everyone should read it. It should be required reading, in my opinion. Uh, how hard has it been as a, as a journalist to report on Jones Day? I mean, imagine the New York Times attorneys have to pour over everything. Uh, how hard is it for you and, and other reporters who might be intimidated by trying to cover this beat? I think, I mean, everyone, when I started working on this a couple of years ago, everyone was like, oh, Jones Day is the most secretive place. There's no way anyone there will talk to you. And it was not that hard, honestly. I mean, it, I've been doing this for a long time, so I kind of know a bunch of the tricks of the trade of getting people to talk, but ultimately, I got a lot of people, both current and former Jones Day lawyers, kind of up and down the food chain, to talk confidentially, if nothing else. And once you start getting certain people to talk, it makes it easier to get other people to talk. I mean, I will say one of my concerns all along was that you know Jones Day is a litigious law firm, and that made me, I think, a little bit nervous. But I really, I have a great publisher, Harper Collins, that has 
you know, is itself part of a very big company that I think makes it a less uh, enticing target for even a litigious law firm. And um, so I think, look, there's a track record, not with Jones Day, but in general of big law firms when anyone is writing critically about them to just really deploy some of these tactics that they've become infamous for against the journalists. And I detail some of this in the book, not involving Jones Day, really, but involving other law firms that have really, in my opinion, just gone completely crazy with just over-the-top kind of censorship tactics. Um, Jones Day, to its credit, didn't really do that. What they did do, they they did uh, hire their own lawyers, an outside law firm, to represent them. And the law firm, that law firm sent not threatening letters, but kind of high pressure letters, you could say, to my publisher complaining <laughs> about what I was writing, demanding to see a manuscript of the book, uh, accusing me of bias. And wow. but again, I, I don't want to like I don't want to make it sound like that was some like terrifying situation where I was like shaking in my boots. It was this is kind of run of the mill tactics these days mm. for people who are writing about mm. big businesses or big institutions. Uh I think that's kind of unfortunate, but the, the tactics Jones they used were in that context, I think fairly middle of the road and certainly were not, they never risked uh, derailing the book in part because I tried to be really careful about what I was writing and also wanted to be fair to them. And sure. from the very beginning of this process was soliciting feedback from among others, their managing partner, Steve Brogan, who unfortunately refused to talk to me. There you go. I mean, it, I can see that it can have a chilling effect, though, on, on reporters, yeah. uh, especially smaller, you know, localized yeah, reporters who don't have a, you know, who don't have a, a, a big attorney, as I'm sure, like the New York Times does. Uh, hang on, I just got an email here. Oh, look, it's my C and D from Jones Day. <laughs> Cease and desist. No, I'm just kidding. There's no, that's a joke, people. Uh, but I'll expect one after within the hour. Uh, so this has been pretty insightful. What what else do we want to just tease out in your book? Uh, get people to go out and pick it up that we haven't maybe touched on. I mean, one of the other kind of interesting elements of this to me is that. I, I kind of knew going into this, that, or I suspected I would find examples of big law firms using slightly unsavory tactics against plaintiffs and just against their opponents. What I was more surprised to find actually was, and there's a lot of that in the book, but I was also really surprised to find how even in dealing with their own employees, sometimes uh, the firm and others was just... I mean, really heavy handed to put it mildly. I mean, there are examples of people getting, you know, verbally or in some cases physically assaulted and the firm's ethos is really, you know, they say they want to have an open kind of workplace where dissent is tolerated, but in talking to dozens of people who work there, the culture that was created by under, by the firm in an effort to kind of have a cohesive organization it was. It really ended up, I think, often discouraging dissent, even if that wasn't necessarily the yeah. intention. And to me, it's that's like a really interesting lesson in kind of organizational dynamics, which is not the sexiest thing in the world. But I think for anyone who works at a big company or a big organization of any sort, it might ring true. And I think there are a lot of lessons that people can take uh, as they, you know, for the the importance of establishing not just being lip service to the idea of having kind of a small d democratic culture. But the importance of actually seeing how the 
how your leader's rhetoric and actions really quickly kind of trickles down through an organization, sometimes in a not very healthy way. You know, we saw some of that with the original management of Uber, where there was yeah, absolutely of, you know, very bullying, very sort yeah. of thing. You know, those. Uh, if, I guess if you're bullied at Jones Day. You should probably hire an attorney. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, it's a very insightful book. A lot of explosive stuff. The Abbott Labs thing. Uh, attorneys that are, you know are helping you know guys do evil stuff around the world, hide money. You know, drug traffickers and other things that you have in the book. It's it's quite extraordinary, and it's a it's a wonderful read. And everyone, like I said, should read it and really understand the power that's behind. Uh, what goes on in our world and how it shapes our world. I mean, look how world our, how different our world is going to be. Our elections are probably going to be different uh, because of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And then you look back and understand how Don McGahn and the Federal Society stacked the court, you know, how they brought the, the Trump administration into fruition. Um, you, you know, people don't understand. There's years, decades sometimes, uh, sometimes yeah. several decades that, that go behind these things that, that, you know, affect what's going on today. And people wake up from it and they go into shock and they just go, oh, the SCOTUS is bad. And you're just like, no, you voted like crap for 40 years and this is the result. And welcome, you know, you get the government you deserve. Um, give us your uh, plugs uh, real quick before we go out so people can find you on the interwebs, please, sir. My, my, I'm sorry, give you my what? Plugs, uh, dot coms, uh, wherever you are. Oh, I don't really do dot coms. I, but I'm on Twitter at David Enrich. I'm on Facebook at David J. Enrich, I think. Instagram, mm -hmm. David dot Enrich. LinkedIn, I'm there, but I don't actually know what my handle is because there you go. I'm an idiot with this kind of stuff. That's okay. And you, you, uh, there's a small website, the New York Times, I think that you're on. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There is that small website as well. They might want to. They just sent me an email saying, "Make sure he plugs the New York Times." I'm just kidding. They didn't do that. But I don't, uh, I don't think they need anyone's help. They don't. They don't. They sent me a C and D too. Anyway, I'm just kidding. Uh, David, it's been wonderful and very insightful to have you on the show, and hopefully very educational for our audience. I encourage everyone to go out and buy the book. Uh, thank you very much for coming on, sharing your uh, story with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Thank you. And guys, go pick up the book. Wherever fine books are sold, stay out of those alleyway bookstores because I went in one last week, had to get a tetanus shot. Uh, pick it up. Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump and the Corruption of Justice. I had the date wrong actually earlier. I quoted the paperback date. The hardcover came out September 13, 2022. So if you're watching that 20, 10 years from now on YouTube, don't tell me that I got the dates wrong. Uh, pick it up wherever fine books are sold. Uh, go see us on YouTube.com, Fortress Chris Foss goodreads.com for it says chris foss and all the places the chris foss show channels are thanks for tuning in be good to each other stay safe and we'll see you guys next time